0: Um, okay, before I start, I'm just going to show you my cards about the Trinity. And I, that book that Gimli just passed out, Delighting in the Trinity, I really do love that book and I pulled a lot from it in prepping for this talk. And I have to say though, whenever you think about the Trinity, it just feels like you're like circling around this like incomprehensible beast and you're like, I just don't know where to try to take a stab at it. And I got, like, really overwhelmed, and I got to the point where I was looking at that book, and I was like, Michael, I am so glad that you are delighting in the Trinity, because right now I am super overwhelmed by it. And I think, the more I thought about it, I think that's a really good place to start, to just be really overwhelmed by the Trinity. I am going to read to you Psalm 145.3, and it says, The Lord is great and highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So what we're about to do is attempt to think about an incomprehensible God. And we do have to approach this with a lot of humility and total amazement that he would even choose to reveal himself to us at all. Because like that verse says, his greatness is unsearchable. Scott Swain reminds us that we are outsiders of the Trinity. And knowledge of the persons of the Trinity, he calls it insider knowledge. He says it's known to outsiders only when insiders make it known to them. So he goes on to say that because the persons of the Trinity are internal to God's life, not external works of God, we can only know the persons of the Trinity as well as their ultimate plan for creation only if they stoop down and open the depths of their inner life to us. So basically, he used a lot of words to say we only get to understand the Trinity if a member of the Trinity Club chooses to teach us, right? We're asking the triune God today to help our distracted, sleepy minds to comprehend a tiny sliver of who he is. And we are going to press in on that, but ultimately we're just going to get to the edge of the Grand Canyon of the Trinity and just marvel, and we really shouldn't expect anything else. So with deep humility and recognition of the magnitude of God, we are going to echo Scott Swain, and he says, here is a treasure hidden in a field in a pearl of great price, knowing Receiving, loving, and praising the Father through the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit, to Him be glory forever. Amen, right? Okay. Every weekday morning, my husband gets in his 20 year old forerunner and he drives it to Solomon Wealth Group. When he gets there, he works as a financial advisor and he logs onto his commu- computer and he answers emails and makes phone calls. And around, like, midday, he'll come home and usually eat lunch with me because we only live two miles from his office. Um, Usually he goes back to work and works until evening. Um, Then he gets in his car and drives back home. And when he gets home, he might play with our kids on the trampoline or he might fold a load of towels while I'm, like, working on dinner. Um, Together we prep water bottles and lunches for the next day. Sometimes before bed he might read um, we might watch a show together, he really likes hunting and fishing, and he really likes the Razorbacks, and he holds his breath every Saturday like the rest of us whenever they're playing, um, he doesn't really like sweets, he really likes, like, chips and salsa if he's gonna have a treat, and he's a great guy, and you should get to know him. Okay, so now you could leave right now and go tell your friends some facts about my husband that maybe you didn't know before, and you could probably guess how to like, interact, how he interacts with the world on a generic Tuesday. And you know roughly what to expect from him. Um, in a way, the things I've told you do help you understand him. You have a better understanding of him. But did you notice that I only told you about things that he does? I didn't tell you about anything about who he is. I didn't tell you this yet but my husband is extremely thoughtful and caring. He regularly puts my needs before his own. And he does work at Solomon Wealth Group, that's true, but the reason why he works there is because he's the sole provider for our family and he's meeting our needs when he works. He does jump on the trampoline with our kids, but he does that because he loves them and he loves to make them laugh when he's sending them flying through the air. Right now, he does read before bed, but I didn't mention that what he's reading right now is a book about the Lord's Supper because he wants to know more about the blood and body of our Savior. He, so knowing more about who he is and what he does helps us have a better understanding of who he is. Those things are tied together. What he does and who he is are tied together. But if I only ever told you about his actions and nothing of his inner self, you wouldn't really know him, and you would miss the things that most of those actions hinge on. Now he's only a human being, so there are holes in that analogy. But I hope that you can kind of understand the importance of what we're doing today. The Trinity, like I said, it's a daunting thing to talk about, and please trust me because I know. I see you guys staring at the board. We're gonna get there. All of y'all are like. <laughs> um it's important to talk about how God interacts with his world. But today we're gonna think less about what God does and more about who God is. So he is three persons in one, he is the Father, Son, who else? He's the Holy Spirit. So it's helpful for me whenever I think about a really big thing like this to just have some concise statements to help orient myself. So we're going to do a few catechisms. And I was going to make you guys dance to these because that's what we do at my house, but I'm not going to make you do it. Um <laughs> Yeah, we're going to skip that part. I'm going to read the official Westminster Confession of Faith Catechism, and then we're going to say the simplified version together on the first two. And then on the third one, I only have one, so we're just going to say it together. So the first, I'll say it, and then I'll point to you whenever I want you to talk. So are there more gods than one? There is, only, there is but one only, the living and true God. Or more simply put, is there more than one God? No, there's only one God. Good job. How many persons are in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are the one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Or, more simply put, in how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Okay, this one's a lot of words, but we're going to do it. We're going to get through it. What are the personal properties of the three persons of the Godhead? We're going to say it together. It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father, and the Son from all eternity. Okay. So we are going to spend a good portion of our morning talking about the relationships between the Father and the Son with each other and with humanity. And a lot of what I'm about to say, the Spirit, is going to be implied but not super explicit. Um, And because of that, I do want to stop here and think specifically about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead in our lives. The Holy Spirit is an equal entity of the Trinity in essence and purpose as compared to the Father and Son. However, there are some distinctions in his role. So, I'm going to toss out some of the roles of the Spirit that we see in Scripture. And these are in your notes. You don't have to try to write these down. All the references are in your notes. And I'm just going to go through these really quickly. Um, And then at the end, I'm going to settle on what I think the Holy Spirit's principal job is. So, Dane Ortland lists that the Spirit regenerates us, He convicts us, He empowers us with gifts. He testifies to our hearts that we are God's children. He leads us. He makes us fruitful. He grants and nurtures us in resurrection life. He enables us to kill sin. He intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray. He guides us in truth. and He transforms us into the image of Christ. Obviously, there could be a ton more things on that list. And all of this would be more than enough for us to just grapple with the rest of the morning. But there is a big cherry on top. And Ortland says that the Spirit causes us to actually feel Christ's heart for us. Jonathan Edwards actually is going to take that to the next level, and he's going to equate the Spirit of God with the love of God. So he says anytime in the Bible that you read about the Spirit of God, you should just go, love of God. We know love because we know the Spirit. John 14 talks a lot, has a lot of Trinitarian content, and um, a lot of it could be relevant, but I'm going to zoom in on verses 18 through 21. So this is John 14, verses 18 through 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. That's John 14, 18 through 21. So this is Jesus speaking. He's saying, of the Holy Spirit, I'm coming to you, in verse 18. He says, I'm in you, in verse 20. He says, I will show myself to you, in verse 21. So already we're having to wrestle with the mystery of three distinct persons that are just one. How can Jesus be saying, I'm coming to you, I'm in you, I will show myself to you, right before his body is about to leave the earth? He's giving us a Trinity peek. He's saying that the coming of the Spirit is the coming of Christ. Jesus in the flesh really did leave the world. Yet, the perfectly unified Godhead is present. He is here with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Ortland wonders what it would be like to open the vents of our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to fan the flames of felt love from the Son. More simply said, we understand the love of the Trinity only because of the work of the Spirit. I'm going to tell you a progression of three stories about the Spirit, and I want you to think about the continuity of Spirit and life and love in each one of these scenarios. So in all three stories, I want you to consider how life from the Spirit is an expression of triune love. I'll say that again. How life from the spirit is an expression of triune love. God created the heavens and the earth. He created trees and birds and all of those weird-looking amphibians, and he created the first person, Adam. In Genesis 2-7, it says that he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And we know that that word for breath is commonly translated as spirit. So life through the spirit, is an expression of trying love right from the beginning. There's a prophet later on that finds himself in a valley, and the valley is eerie, and it's covered in bones, and the bones represent spiritually dead people. And Ezekiel prophesies at the word of the Lord, and whenever we read this story, we're a little bit shaken up because we start visualizing the bones coming together to make people, and then they have organs and skin and lips and ears, and then Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the breath And he says, breath, come and breathe into these bones so that they may live. Again, the Spirit brings life. Life through the Spirit is an expression of triune love. I was eight years old when a guest pastor brought the reality of hell to my attention. I had a super weak but existing grasp on the way that my sin would eternally separate me from God. There really, really was nothing but room to grow in my faith at that moment, but there was a spark. And the spark was enough to sustain my faith in various degrees throughout my whole life up until now. And I was dead. And the triune God looked at me and said, live. And now I'm here today asking you to believe that life through the spirit is an expression of triune love because of that moment. So. Obviously, again, that's barely scratching the surface of the work of the Spirit. But I hope that as we go on, this little summary will give you a context for his involvement both in creation and salvation. You probably realize this, but there are not a lot of texts that explicitly mention all three members of the Trinity just like in one little sentence. But we do have a few, and we're going to use one of them, and the one that you probably have thought of is Matthew 28, 19. We're going to use that as a launch pad. If you want to look at it, it's just one sentence. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. For us, a name is just a label. My name is Haley, but that doesn't really mean a lot. It's just what you say to get my attention. But in the Bible, names mean a lot more. When people get a name change in the Bible, it's because their nature has changed. Abram is changed to Abraham, Simon is renamed Peter, Jacob becomes Israel. When God puts his name on something, he is imparting his glory onto it. When Jesus says, it assumes that it has people into the one name of the three persons of the Trinity, it assumes that the person has come under new authority. They're taking a new nature, and that is the nature of the Godhead. We're baptized into God's triune name so that we might learn to praise God's triune name. From this text alone, we see that if you're a Christian, that is to say, you're a person who, like me, recognizes that you were dead, but now you've been made alive, you've been given a new nature in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are monotheistic and Trinitarian. And I know, I can see you guys are super excited about that, and I think that you're all going to change your Instagram profiles right now. Before you do that, let's talk about what that means. Monotheism says that there is only one God. Trinity is just a shorthand way of including the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the three persons of one God. Each member is of the same essence, and each member is eternal. So one God and three persons. When I say God is a Trinity, you probably don't feel super cozy about that. Stick with me, though, because we are getting to, like, a sweater weather part. When we say God is love, Michael Reed says... He's British, so it sounds British. He says, it is as lovely and warm as a cackling fire. So we are warming up because God is love because God is a Trinity. So get to that conclusion. We're going to talk about creation, and we're going to go even back, 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 way back before creation. We're going to look at John 17, 24, where insider Jesus is going to give us Trinity outsiders a peek into what has been going on for all of eternity. And this is John 17, 24b. Jesus speaking, he says, Father, you have loved me before the world's foundation. Now, the Father and the Son have been perfectly loving each other through the Spirit for forever. In order to be loving, there has to be an object receiving love. Our understanding of love is an outward expression. There has to be an object of love. So I can't say I'm loving without an object to love. So I'm going to do a silly example, but I think that it will help, help us understand. If I say, I love cereal, cereal becomes the object of my love in this sentence, right? I can't say I'm loving without an object to love. So in this example, I do need cereal to exist in order to be loving. My love has to extend onto something or someone in order to be love. Okay, so this is how it works with the Trinity. Before anything existed, God the Father was primarily a father loving his son. That's what we just read. We read before the world's foundations were established, before he was creating and saving and sustaining our very lives, God the Father was perfectly loving his son. And the son is the object of his love and has been for all of eternity. The father couldn't be a father without the existence of the son. And the son, by definition, can't be a son without the existence of a father. The rest of his identity markers of the father flow from the outward love that the father has for the son. So you might be thinking, isn't God a ruler? Yes, he is a fatherly ruler. Isn't he a sustainer? Yes, he sustains us as a father. Isn't he our creator? Yes, and we're about to talk about how even creation itself is just an overflow of his fatherly love. If you're following here, you might have just had like a light bulb moment. This is what I had whenever I was reading that book. If God the Father has been perfectly loving the Son for forever, this means that he doesn't need us in order to be loving. The object of his love is first and foremost his Son, through the Spirit. So I'm actually gonna write that on there. Through the Spirit. Um, okay, so in order to be loving yet without need, God has to be triune. So this is where we're gonna run into problems with single person gods. So let's think about Allah. If Allah is loving, He needs someone to be the object of that love. He therefore needs humanity in order to have something to love. Now, if Allah needs humanity to exist in order to have something to love, does that not cause a reversal in the roles between himself and mankind? It sounds like in order to be a loving God, Allah needs us a little more than we need him. And if that's the case, who is the God in that situation? Think back to the Trinity. If all of this perfect triune love is going on, why would God create a world? I recognize that that isn't exactly casual dinner talk for most of us. I usually don't sit at the table and tell my kids to stop snorting their spaghetti noodles and then say, why do you think the triune God of love created the world? We don't usually think that way. But I think that we can simplify this conversation with some stair steps up to the answer. I think first it's helpful to just put our Triune God chat aside for just a second and think, wonder why a single person God would want to create a universe. Now we've re- remember that we've established that a single person God cannot be inherently loving without something or someone to love. So therefore, he's not gonna create out of an overflow of love. Why would a single person God create? Maybe he's lonely, maybe he would like some servants. A human army of worker ants sounds nice, and why not? We do have early creation accounts of single-person gods doing exactly this. Um, Babylon's earliest myths credit creation to their single-person god, Marduk, who I have written up there. That's how you spell it. Marduk tells us very straightforwardly why he made people, and it was to have slaves. And there you have it. He uh, made mankind in order to have a human army. He and others throughout history set the precedent for single-person gods to create mankind either out of their own self-gratification or need. So we're going to follow this rabbit trail just a little bit longer, and then we're going to get back to the reason for why a triune god would create. If you were a minion of Marduk, how would you feel toward him? Maybe you would feel bullied into allegiance. Maybe you would feel disconnected and unloved. Maybe you would feel like your existence was kind of inconsequential. Maybe you would feel like you were under constant scrutiny of a divine policeman who was just like waiting to give you a citation. But maybe you would feel like you could earn his approval by performing well. And if you're like me, this challenge is compelling and slippery. What if Marduk was your God and you were able to work harder than all the other people? What if you were able to make it up to his temple more often to the, uh, than the others? And what if you did a really good job reading about him and studying him and teaching your kids about him? What if you followed all of his rules perfectly and you got some, like, little Marduk trophies? And what if you did all of that and he was up in heaven and he gave you, like, a divine thumbs up? How would you feel about him? I think at the very best you would feel acknowledged. At the very worst, I think that you would feel manipulated or neglected. Either way, there would always be an unshakable feeling that you'd fallen a little bit short. The treadmill of indebted service would never slow down. Fear would reign, and love would be an unknown concept under the dominion of Marduk, the single person slave master god. So I want to ask you do any of these responses describe the way that you feel toward our triune god? Do you think that Marduk's posture towards humanity seems similar to how you imagine God to be toward you? Tim Chester says that if you don't know that you're a child, you'll live like a slave, with a sense of obligation and a fear of rejection. I'll say that again. If you don't know that you're a child, you'll live like a slave, with a sense of obligation and a fear of rejection. Does it sometimes feel like God isn't interested in your life? Do you feel like he's just giving you a list of things to do, but he doesn't really care about you? Do you feel like you're on a performance treadmill, a performance treadmill that you're hoping you'll be able to clock a good enough time on by the end of your life? Do you ever feel like God is just a little bit disappointed in you? Honestly, that is something that I have wrestled with for a really long time. And I think we're about to see that the answer to that uneasiness follows us back to our original question. Why did God create us? We can understand why Marduk and his successors created people just to have a workforce. But we should think differently about the reason why our triune God created. Okay, so remember, God is not lonely. And the three persons have been in a perfectly harmonious, loving relationship for forever. Love is not a new idea for God, and neither is fathering. Remember, the father has been perfectly outwardly loving the son through the spirit as the son has been perfectly outwardly loving the father through the spirit. There's a lot of outward love being expressed, and the primary source is the father, who as the name father suggests, has been fathering. Wouldn't it make sense then that creation would be an extension of a fatherly outward expression of love, that he would create out of love? Reeves says that Jesus Christ is the blueprint for creation. He's the one eternally loved by the Father, and creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. He goes on to say that God the Father so delighted in his Son that his love for him overflowed, so that the Son might be the firstborn among many sons and daughters. Paul's going to say something really similar in Ephesians 1 3 through 6. That says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. We exist because of the abundant love of the Father. We're here today because the Father wanted to share his perfect love with us. Our being is an expression of his bursting love. And Reeves says that God's very life, being, and goodness is yeasty, which I love that picture because it really gives a good visual. It's yeasty, spreading out that there might be more that is truly good. In Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes about this type of creation from the perspective of a senior demon reporting. This is what he says. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. He is full and flows over. How does it make you feel to consider that you, yes, you, Jessica, yes, you, Emily, yes, you, Ketty, yes, you, Aaron, all of you were created out of an overflow of love that the Father has for the, Spirit, for the Son through the Spirit. Scripture shows us this involvement of all three persons of the Trinity in creation. We're going to think about Genesis 1. The word goes out from the Father by the power of the hovering Spirit, And we know from John 1.3 that the word is the Son. So right there, we've got the Father, Son, and Spirit all together in creation. Colossians 1.15 tells us explicitly that by him the Son and for him the Son, all things were created. And when that verse says for him, it means that the Son is the inheritor of all things. We see that in Hebrews 1.2. And because of the Father's extravagant love for the Son, he wants to share his inheritance with us. Romans 8:17 says that if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Do you see the big difference here between a single person God and our triune God in creation? The single person God does not love. He does not give. He is not outpouring and he for sure is not prepared to give his slaves an eternal inheritance. But our God, our triune God, created the earth and the plants and animals and mankind in his very image out of love brimming over. Because of his love, he made us and said, This is very good. Outward love makes all of the difference here. So you're here right now because God the Father loved his eternal Son in a perfect, fatherly overflowing way to the point of creating man and woman through him and for him and we are a manifestation of the father's outward flowing love for creation the paradigm this paradigm shift should rattle us a little bit um, because this this has some like deep implications what does knowing that you are a manifestation of the father's love say to your own insecurities and doubts how does it give you a fresh understanding of just saying something casual like god loves you J.I. Packer helps us see the significance of viewing God as our father, and I'm just going to make it directly applicable to women. If you want to judge how well a woman understands Christianity, find out how much she makes of the thought of being God's child, and having God as her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls her worship and prayers and her whole outlook on life, it means that she does not understand Christianity very well at all. How much do you make of the thought of being God's child, of having God as your father? How does it change the way that you think God views you? We pray, Lord, please let this thought prompt and control our worship and prayers. A lot of the time it doesn't, though, does it? Jesus says that our problem is that we lack faith, we don't believe that God cares. We think of him as distant, and when we look at the world, we see it as unfathered. And we can trace this faith all the way back to the fall. Tim Chester says that the lie of the serpent in the Garden of Eden was that God is an uncaring father. He points out that Satan didn't dispute the existence of God or his power. The lie was that God doesn't care. We make it all of three chapters into the Bible when we feel the crushing weight of original sin. Immediately after that sin in the garden, we mourn, and we empathize with our original parents, and we know that we need help. In revisiting Eden, we're going to think about exactly what went wrong. So we're turning to think about salvation. In the simplest of terms, Adam and Eve failed to obey. So if we served a single-person God that didn't create out of an overflow of love, but out of a desire to have an earth populated by rule-following minions, then right or wrong is going to mean nothing more than right or wrong behavior. Once again, we're going to play it out with a single-person God. Think about the fall. The single-person God is only a ruler and not a father. The choice to eat the forbidden fruit was their wrong one, and Adam and Eve are met with the divine policeman. And the police God has two choices. He can punish the disobedient action, or if he has some category for grace, he can maybe, like, let them off with a warning. He can say something like, I won't punish you this time, but don't let this happen again. His response wouldn't be motivated by love, but out of agitation for having to deal with troublemakers. And really, there would be no relational care shown. And the reaction from our original parents would have either been relief for the warning or shame under the weight of punishment, And there's no category for them or us to truly love if God is primarily a God who's ruling and not loving. Remember, we love because he first loved us. Ironically, if this were our God, our inability to love the divine policeman would just keep us from keeping the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God. Knowing the love of God is what makes us loving. In this scenario, only the actions of Adam and Eve are held to the right versus wrong standard, and the Bible does tell us that actions do matter, but just looking at what a person does doesn't go anywhere near deep enough. Sin is something that goes much deeper than our behavior. Jesus will say that we can spend a lifetime doing exactly what is right and be no better off than a tomb holding a dead person with a very clean exterior. We can be rotting on the inside and smiling on the outside. To drive this point home even more clearly, Jonathan Edwards argues that even demons can do what is right in the superficial sense of like right behavior. He draws from, eight, from Luke 8:27 through 28 to make this argument. Here's what Luke 8:27 through 28 says: When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of God Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Edwards writes, When he saw Jesus, he cried out. He fell down before him and with a loud voice he said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. So here's external worship. The devil is religious. He prays. He prays in a humble posture. He falls down before Christ. He lies prostrate. He prays earnestly. He cries with a loud voice. He uses humble expressions. I beseech thee, torment me not. He uses respectful, honorable, adoring expressions. Jesus, thou Son of God most high, nothing was wanting but love. In talking about this that Edwards wrote, Reeves comments and says that if sin is simply about acting, then the devil here is not sinning. Now we're going to reflect on the fall in relation to our triune God. Let's go back. The fruit is forbidden. Adam and Eve choose to eat it anyway. What happened? In Genesis 127, God created mankind in his own image, and mankind was made in the image of the triune God of love. At their core, they were created to live in a perfectly harmonious relationship, loving God and loving each other. They were created by the triune God of love to love. And they couldn't undo their nature. But the devastation came when they chose to love wrongly. Their love turned inward, and this is sin. Second Timothy 3, 2-4 reminds us that sinners are lovers of self, lovers of money, without love for what is good. John 3.19 tells us very plainly, people love darkness rather than light. If we follow those breadcrumbs far enough, we realize that sin is ultimately just becoming lovers of ourselves. Our parents caved inward, loving themselves more than the father. Making ourselves the object of our love, we'll call it inward love, leads to problems. And we share in that experience because our love caves inward too. We do love ourselves in the place of loving our Father. The action of eating the fruit was just a manifestation of hearts that had chosen to love themselves instead of the Father, and that is so much worse than just wrong external behavior. Inward love plays out pretty predictably, and I think that you'll follow what I'm saying here. We realize usually that we do have a problem. But instead of stumbling forward into our loving God, we buckle down and we try to clean it up ourselves. We try to justify ourselves, and we strategically and subtly compare ourselves to others who seem like maybe a little bit worse than we are. Think about the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. Verse 11 says that the Pharisee was praying this way about himself. So notice the inward-facing love. He says, I'm not like other people. I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not adulterous. Do you see the contrasting response of the tax collector in verse 14? His prayer was outwardly loving toward God because he says, God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. And the Bible says that the tax collector was justified. So we're back to the father versus the policeman. The Pharisee approached God ready to defend himself, and the tax collector came as a son would come to a loving father when he knows that he needs help. He trusted that his loving Father would justify him. So how do we understand the way that the members of the Trinity work together in our own justification? Great question. I'm glad you asked. We have loved wrongly, and we feel it. We have known the outpouring love of the Father toward us, and we have felt the shift in our hearts from joyfully reciprocating that love back to him to lingering a little too long on other loves. We sin, and we hide, and we try to shrug the guilt off, preferably onto someone else. Here we are. What does our triune God of love have to say to us now? What does he have to say to me now? This part is staggering. We have to slow down and feel the depth of it. Adam and Eve's rejection of God, your rejection of God, my rejection of God, is the very thing that drew his love for us out even more. His answer was his son. His son. That takes us all the way back to the beginning. Remember the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in an eternal, perfect harmony. The Father created this world and everything in it, including you, including me, out of an overflow of love for his Son, and we're here in him in Him, and through him. What are the depths of his love, that he would be willing to send his son, Emmanuel, God with us, to be with us, to give himself for us in our desperate, self-inflicted need. How do we know what love is? This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He wore our skin, and he felt our ache, and his perfect love toward the Father never wavered we have it right there he laid down his life for us and this is how we know that we're loved his life is the response to our sin problem and that would totally be enough just to be pardoned to have our missteps answered with an opportunity to just go off scot-free but our triune God doesn't stop there the father sent the son to make himself known he sent him so that the eternal love of the Father that he's had for the Son would be visible for us in a person. He wants us to enjoy and love the Son as he always has. Reeb says it like this, For the Father gives all of his glory, his love, his blessing, his very self exclusively to his Son, and then he sends his Son to us to share with his fullness. So maybe you're starting to wonder again about that poor, forgotten Holy Spirit. What is he up to in the middle of all this? Another great question. The eternal Father has loved the eternal Son so deeply and perfectly that he created more to love by creating people, by creating us. So we should be the surest, most secure people in the world. The fact that God is triune is the final and complete answer to the question of does God care? He does care how could a father not love his children? But he is going to go one step further and show us the extent of his care through the gift of his spirit. Scripture puts it like this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's Luke 11, 11 through 13. I'm going to call in a very weird psalm that I bet you do not have framed in your living room. And if you want to turn there, it's Psalm 133. It starts off very sweetly. It says, How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. And that is super great. Things get funky from there. After that, it says... It's like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. That's Psalm 133. We're talking about the ordination of Aaron as priest, where sacred anointing oil would have been poured on his head, and that's from Leviticus 8.12. Aaron is a priest that would point to a greater priest, a high priest, Jesus. As Aaron was anointed with the oil, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And if Jesus is the head of the body, the church, the Holy Spirit is running down onto us. We have not just received the Son. We have received the Spirit through the Father and the Son. Because of the Spirit, We get to take the next step forward. And we're not just saved from hell. We are saved for good work here and now. we have a living heart. And we do have a renewed ability to love rightly. So our salvation is uniquely Trinitarian. I hope that you'll see we are not unloved. We are not abandoned. And we are not being policed by some uninterested deity. We are loved by our Father. We are justified by the Son And we are empowered by the spirit. So I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of the Trinity referred to as an egg? Or maybe as different forms of water? Some like vaporizing spirit, some icy sun, some liquid father all flowing together to make godly water. When we think about the magnitude of the perfect love the Father has had for the Son through the Spirit for all of eternity, past, present, and future, and how he created us in and through him as a representation of that love, doesn't it make the watery thing feel a little watery? Instead of telling our friends about water God or four-leaf clover God, wouldn't we be better better suited to tell them about our perfect and eternal Father His Son, whose love is drawn out in our failures, and the Holy Spirit that lifts our chins up when we want to despair by reminding us that we are loved by each member of the Trinity. If you are anything like me, you are waiting for the to do. This is all great, but how can I be a more dutiful Christian when I leave here? There's actually a really good example of a dutiful worker in Scripture. We have a record of this man continuing his work in the field after the others have gone inside. In fact, the other workers were listening to music and they were dancing and eating a feast in the house and this man was just slowly making his way back in. Surprisingly, I'm not describing a man noted for his attributes that we should try to follow. I just summarized the ethic of the older brother in Luke 15 that Olivia read for us earlier. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, you know that this older brother did not work diligently because he saw himself as a beloved son. In fact, he saw himself as a slave. His focus was turned inward, and he wanted his own reward and his own justification, and he got frustrated when he felt like his work was unnoticed, and his inward-facing love was just spewing out of his mouth. She read it for us. He says in Luke 15, 29, I have been slaving. I have never disobeyed. Does that remind you of the Pharisee in Luke 18? Sisters, we also can dutifully work day after day without realizing that we're serving out of an inward-facing love. We can treat God like he's a disappointed boss up in heaven with his arms crossed, just sighing at us every time we get into something difficult with parenting or discipleship or prayer. We can get frustrated that our own efforts don't seem to be earning our justification. But single-person gods will always say, do more, do better. But our triune God of love says it is finished. We don't look at the prodigal's older brother because we've got a different son to lock our eyes on and our eyes have to stay there. The eternal son of the eternal father willingly went to the cross for the joy that was set before him and he joyfully offered his life. He tells us to follow him. We can follow out of duty, or we can follow out of an overflow of joy. John 3:16 really should blow our minds, but I've heard it too many times. I'm not as stunned as I should be that God the Father so loved the world, that's us, that he sent his son. We forget that actually, before creation, God the Father so loved his son that he created the world. And the creation that he loved chose to love itself. The Father cared so much for us that he sacrificed his perfect son for our redemption. We were bought back when the son joyfully gave his life for our lives in submission to the Father through the power of the Spirit. So actually, we do have two things to do. Rest and pray. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 through 28, Jesus gives us a little monologue about his relationship with the Father. He says that no one knows the Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. And then right after saying that, that no one knows the Father, except whom the Son desires to reveal him, right after that comes our favorite passage when Jesus says, "Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." He's inviting us each to know Him the one triune God, through coming to him and accepting his rest. So what role do we play when we think about the Trinity? First, we just rest in it. Secondly, we pray. Reeves says that prayer is learning to enjoy what the Son has been eternally enjoying, which is just communion with the Father. When our coldness and guilt scream at us to stay away from him, prayer is our reminder that we are not approaching a divine... A divine policeman, but our father. Hosea 11:2 through3 gives us an Old Testament visual picture of this fatherhood. This is like one of my favorite, like one-line verses in the Old Testament. He says, "I called him Israel my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the hand. We have to believe that he is our Father. And again, Reeves is timely. He says that since the spirit knows our weakness, we can be real with our Father. We can accept how babyish our faith is, and we can simply stammer out what's on our hearts. It is exercising belief that the Almighty is my willing and kind Father, and in accepting me in the Son, he wants to hear me and bless me. Each member of the Trinity is for us in our weakness. Chester says that without an encounter of the three persons of God, the word God has no content for us. And I would say that the opposite of that statement is also true. With an encounter of the three persons of God, the word God has all the content in the world for us. So all praise and glory and honor to our triune God. Amen.